you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022. This is episode number 203. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today, we're talking about the industry's first LGBTQ-led consortium, a self-reported sales error results in a hefty fine, are cannabis companies targeting kids? I think high times might be. A new bill to clear cannabis convictions faster, Wisconsin no go, not going green anytime soon, the state of weed tourism, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. If someone could take the stress out of the news, it's silky smooth Lara DeCaro. She's a staunch defender of LGBTQ rights and able to mediate and practice law in three states. Lara is a valuable voice for the State of Cannabis News Hour and is lending her skills as a valued co-producer and moderator. What you got for us today, silky smooth? Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm a little less than smooth this morning. I'm sorry, my my voice is still fighting off a little bit of that cold. Um, but this morning, I have a, an interesting article out of Forbes magazine. Um, it is titled "Introducing the Queer Cannabis Club: The Industry's First LGBTQ-Led Consortium." So. Being from San Francisco, the birthplace of medicinal cannabis by Mother Brownie Mary, I questioned the article's lead line, but I did invite one of the founders to join us here today to discuss a little bit about this because I I think it's time, right, that the queer community had a a voice in mainstream media and it was interesting to me to, to read their article. So the article starts out that... The idea was initially conceived and soft-launched by Alexander Farnsworth, whom I believe is in the audience, during Pride Month in 2021, although Aspen Gate Ski Week, I'm so pumped I missed this, um, was the first ever gathering of this new nonprofit organization. It was formed apparently after receiving several social media shutdowns and bonding with other queer members of the cannabis community at various 
conferences and really identifying the, their common goals. The Queer Cannabis Club, according to this article, has two goals. One, to create a queer community that is sorely lacking in the cannabis industry and to bring together artists, creators, entrepreneurs, bon vivants, iconoclasts, and anyone else keen to expand human consciousness. Uh, the founders are not located in major metropolitan areas like San Francisco. They're out in Massachusetts. So they were particularly aware of the need for community support. Um, they did, however, come from similar suburban childhoods in Salt Lake City and Denver, which explains their feelings of oppression. Uh, and their coming out stories um, connected them on a personal level, according to this article. Where I grew up, it was very conservative, said one co-founder, Jake Bollock. The birthplace of the evangelical movement was only an hour away, and that really weighed on me as a child and made the whole identity process harder. And I didn't find cannabis until much later in life. So I think, you know, I'd like to stop there. I think Alexander is in the office, uh, audience. If you raise your hand, we can bring you up on stage to comment. Um, just hit the little hand button down in the corner. Um, but it, it was interesting to me, obviously, as a San Franciscan, we have a significant history and strong support of our, uh, of our queer community. Um, but that's not something we experience across the United States. Um, and Alexander, do you have a, a couple of comments about maybe you can tell us why you felt it was important, why, why it was time to create a consortium specifically dedicated to our queer community? Are you up here? I invited him up, but um, I don't know what's going on. Oh. oh there good. he is. There he is. Hi. Good morning. How are you? We're, we're great. How, we have just a couple seconds. If you can tell us, give us a little bit of background yes. why you think. Yeah, why, why do we need this? We need this because right now the industry is being dominated by multi-state operators. And while every year when Pride Month comes along, they hop on the bandwagon and they have products that have give backs to, you know, charities and organizations that need the funding. And while that's fantastic, what I found is as a independently owned cannabis brand and dispensary that we had to beg and scream, scream to get those products from the MSOs onto our shelves, even if we had great existing relationships. And as one of five LGBT-owned and operated dispensaries in the state of Massachusetts, it just felt that really, if we're in the situation that we're not getting the, the attention or the priority that we really should be. And I didn't feel as an LGBT company that we should have to, to be really advocating for ourselves at the amount that we did to these MSOs. And then secondly, it was about um, social media and what happened during Pride Month, which is that you know, we proudly had 10 products on our shelves that had great givebacks, and we had some matching givebacks as well. And we were highlighting those, sharing them on Instagram, not with prices or where to purchase, but which foundations and charities that they benefited. And we had two Instagram accounts get shut down in, in one week. Welcome and we've all been shut down. <laughs> so yes. And I know that I know that and having worked in social media for 10 years, I know that even more. And it made me wake up to the fact that we need to own the narrative more than we do. And that it's difficult to be an independent operator in cannabis. Um, and that queer operators need to have a community. And as you said, we're located in a, a quiet resort town in the Berkshires. 
And so we don't have our, our you know, watering hole that we can go to and even connect with our, our local members. And so what's been incredible is that that Forbes article has been shared in, uh, in Mexico on, on um, you know, in Spanish, on, in Spanish cannabis publications. And it's really aware uh, and awakening that obviously queer cannabis is a, a global need. Yeah, yeah, we have a, a community that is um, more prone to uh, substance abuse in ways that I think cannabis can help alleviate, and the article does sort of touch on that. So, well, thank you so much for, for stepping into the room um, and giving us a little bit of background on the organization. Good luck. We look forward to thank seeing you for good us. things and make sure that, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you. Um, <laughs> make sure. Yes, queercannabis.club to join in. No plugging, but hey, I want to say thank you so much for this. And um, yeah, I think we've reached our time on this article, but Alexander, thank you so much for coming in. Um, we'll definitely be watching what good things you do for the queer community and cannabis. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Alexander, and, and thank you, Laura. Uh, this is one of the things that's special about the State of Cannabis News Hour is not only do we handpick the news, uh, but we have audience participation where people that are actually in the news can come up and share. So that was a beautiful State of Cannabis News Hour moment. Uh, we're going to uh, keep moving up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dope <laughs> Dad Alive is here to encourage other dope dads that incorporate cannabis in, to enhance their parenting. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour, even when he didn't get any sleep at all the night before. Rico, what <laughs> have you got for us? All right. Uh, so today's story, I'm going to keep it real, real short because I want a little bit of a d debate after this, um, after I go through it. So mine's coming out of the Las Vegas Review Journal, Nevada cannabis store fined $45,000 after self-reporting a sales error. I guess the old saying's true, that no good deed goes unpunished. Nevada Organics, uh, Organic Remedies, owner and operator of retail dispensary, the source was fined $45,000 by the Nevada Cannabis regulators, after self-reporting, an employee sold more than the legal amount of cannabis to a patron. That was actually a considerable step down from the originally proposed 62500 After reassessing the severity, regulators decided to reduce the punishment to 45 k And per the Las Vegas Review-Journal, the source discovered that bud tenders sold more than the legally allowable one ounce of cannabis to a customer back in May 2021. Three days later, they reported the error uh, to the Nevada Cannabis Compliance Board, the CCB. Um, and the weird part here is that that Nevada Organic Remedies claims to have a safeguard in the company sales system that would have automatically identified and flagged the transaction. However, the tool had been disabled. Citing the company self-reported the error, CCB member uh, Rihanna Durrett said, Proposed fine was too steep, favoring a lower amount. Deputy, uh, Deputy Attorney General L. Christopher Rath said that the company made sure the safeguard was turned back on, and the company agreed to train its employees not to rely as heavily on safeguard system to catch improper sales. The source's attorney, Amanda, Con Amanda Connor, 
made a case to the board against levying such high fines on a self-reported violation. I do think it's important for the board to remember that such steep penalties and self-reports is going to discourage uh, people to, in the industry from self-reporting at all, she said. Uh, Rath then pushed back, citing the fine amount being so high the company uh, because the company had already had a previous violation on the record involving a transfer of interest issue relating to its cannabis license. The Nevada State Compliance Board ultimately unanimously approved Durrett's proposal. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad on the LA streets, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know she's not here with us today, but I would have loved to hear Nicole West's take on this one, given her experience in Colorado with a similar case. Uh, but uh, what do the rest of y'all think? Is uh, any amounts better than doing time, but is the fine too steep at either level? Or who's right here, Rath or Connor? Stop snitching, especially when you're snitching on yourself. <laughs> in any other industry, these kind of fines would or these kind of self-reported things are like, okay, you fixed it. And they would just, it would just disappear. But no, in the cannabis industry, it's a $45,000 fine. It's ridiculous. If that were to happen here in California, do you think $45,000 fine is, uh, is appropriate, Jason? Um, I don't think a $45,000 fine is appropriate at all. Um, I think it's a gross overreach by government to overtax and overregulate our industry. And, um, that's I think I think it's just totally ridiculous. Even if they um, turned off the safeguard in their system, making it so th- that they couldn't sell that amount, they were going to get in trouble regardless. Um, Metric would have caught it. I mean, I, I mean, it may have, it may not. Maybe no one noticed it. Who knows? The the point is, is that they went to rectify the situation once they noticed that it had been done, and I'm sure that that could have been done as as a human error and not out of a necessary malice or trying to get over on the system. Why do they even have that switch that you can turn off if, if you shouldn't turn it off? So like that, that's, that brings up a whole other set right. of questions. I agree with that. What's the point of having a safeguard if you can turn the shit off? Exactly. So do they say how much more pot the guy sold? No, it doesn't say how much. Either way, the, the fine is ridiculous. And, and, and there's no guarantee that he did so, sell more cannabis than, 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 than when he was supposed to at the same time, too. The thing is, who's ever going to, you know, follow this to a T if this is what happens when you do? That's why I said, Liz, stop snitching, especially when you snitch on yourself. Well, I mean, when law enforcement and the regulators and elected officials don't even understand the regulations yet, you know, how is the industry supposed to, you know, have everything down already when it's so new and then get these ridiculous fines? Give people a little bit of time to get their their machine working, you know, come on. Right. They had a show about this in the 80s, Susan. What? They had a show about this in the 80s. It was called Growing Pains. Okay. <laughs> oh, my. You guys, I'm, su- I'm that super- Alan Dick? You watch Growing Pains but not Anchorman? Yeah. What's wrong with you, Jason? Anchorman is not from the 80s. <laughs> okay. It was another 20 years ago. I, I'm, I'm super high this morning. I forgot to time again. Is anyone timing? Are we at time? I'm, I'm sure. We're at time. We're at time. I think we're on time. Okay. Back to you, Laura. Okay. All right. Yep. Well, up next, we have our very own lovely Liz Rogan. Um, She is actually a a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. Um, uh, Liz, what do you have for us today? 
Thank you, Laura. Happy Thursday, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My story comes from the Santa Maria Times by Mike Hodgson. The headline reads, Race for Cannabis Land Use Entitlement in Santa Barbara County Turns to Orderly License Queue. So if you've been uh, paying attention for a bit, you'll know that Santa Barbara County was in the spotlight in 2018 for having the highest number of cultivation licenses. It was seen as ideal, being both well-positioned geographically for both agriculture and commerce. It has a rich agricultural history that drives the economy, and the unique terroir of the south-facing coast has long been capitalized by the wine industry. But in Carpinteria, dilapidated greenhouses going fallow due to global competition and cut flowers, the local uh, cannabis operators came together and took initiative early on, working hard to create cannabis regulations. Due to concerns about a land race, sorry, land grab, uh, odor, compatibility with other crops, and to allay public concerns that Santa Barbara County's agricultural agricultural, uh, land could all change to cannabis, the Board of Supervisors created caps on cultivation acreage. So 186 acres cap for the Carpinteria Valley and 1,575 acreage cap for the rest of the unincorporated area. And the cap does not include areas inside steady limits. In addition, the the county's early adoption of local approval for legal nonconforming operators opened in the door for the impending land grab, even before the ordinance was drafted. Unsurprisingly, these caps created an even greater rush to stake a claim, and applications have far exceeded the caps. Total acreage sought in the greater unincorporated area is 3,173 acres, which is more than double the cap. And in Carpinteria, the total acreage sought is 214 acres, which is 28 acres over the cap. Since the applications for the land use permits have exceeded the cap, the county executive office has stopped processing new business license applications. But planning development is still continuing to process the land use permits. Brittany Heaton, who's the principal analyst with the county executive office, said the Carpinteria cap is not completely reserved yet, but we think it will be full by the end of March. So when the land use entitlement is approved, the uh, operator can then apply for a business license, which puts them on the eligibility list. But that simply serves as a reservation. It doesn't guarantee they get acreage under the cap. They have to survive all the appeals. And there are local groups who have pledged to appeal every single cultivation uh, land use entitlement um, before these operators are issued a land use entitlement permit. And they have to have that permit in hand before they can get a business license. They need both of those to get their state license. So 22 cannabis permits have been appealed thus far. Uh, Permits approved accounted for 543 acres in the greater unincorporated area. So about a third of that is uh, is now taken, and 64 acres in Carpinteria. total of 90 applications for business licenses have been submitted and 15 have been issued. Once a potential operator has issued a business license and has a spot on the eligibility list, their acreage is then secured in the cap, but they do need to get that state, li- state license before they can cultivate. The cap in the greater unincorporated area has been reached by the 13 operators on the eligibility list. Uh, business licenses for five of them are pending. Three operators in the Carpinteria eligibility list have taken acreage there to the limit. With the cap reached in the eligibility list, the rest of the applicants are placed on a waiting list. It's not necessarily the end of the road. Some operators may lose their licenses for violations and others may drop out for other reasons. Heaton said she heard of a couple operators with licenses deciding not to pursue cannabis and they had 35 acres in the cap.
When the acreage opens up, the opportunity to cultivate passes on to the next operator and so on. Unfortunately, the way this is set up with the constantly increasing costs of licensing, startup, and then multiple appeals, it all continually narrows the road for smaller operators. The Board of Supervisors decided it would be easier to oversee a few large farms than a large amount of small farms. Odor and pesticide drift are typically the two biggest pain points in every land use permit. Oh, the fun. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear what anyone has to say about this uh, very exciting issue. Just kidding. Hey, Liz, thank you for bringing this up. And, you know, Santa Barbara, unfortunately, has become such a shit show. And the license stacking that the, the two of those supervisors allowed is, is just absurd. And one thing I didn't hear, um, I have some property. My family's had property up in the central coast for over 100 years. And one thing you didn't mention is water. And water, the aquifers are just tanking especially in Northeast Santa Barbara County and San Luis Obispo County where our property is, there's no water. And I have photos that go back a century and stuff. There's just, these water tables are crashing. So that's a component that really needs to be factored into all of this. So up next, he's the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and his conservative values are an obvious nod as to why he believes the 80s were a superior era for cult classics and Donald Trump is someone you desire Flying across the country, private to visit at Mar-a-Lago. The good old days, right? <laughs> Up next, we've got Jason Beck. Oh, Rico, good morning, man. Hope everyone's having a fantastic Thursday today. Today, um, a new bill introduced in California. A new bill will force courts to clear cannabis convictions faster. California will set new deadlines to dismiss and seal many cannabis convictions under a bill introduced Wednesday aimed at readdressing anti-drug laws that disproportionately targeted communities of color. The moves come two weeks after a Times investigation found that tens of thousands of Californians are still stuck with felonies, misdemeanors, and other cannabis convictions on their record. Despite a 2018 law that required the state to clear cannabis convictions, many courts have been slow to process cases, the Times found. California made a promise. I'm focused on making sure that California keeps its promises, said said the bill's author, Assembly Member Mia Bonita, Democrat from Alameda. This bill will allow us to automatically seal qualifying cannabis criminal records. The measure would give the courts until January 1st, 2023 to update test records and transmit them to the State Department of Justice, which maintains a, the statewide criminal criminal history database and response to background checks. July 1st, 2023 would be the deadline for the state DOJ to modify its records accordingly. The change would 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 clarify the intent in parentheses of the 2018 law, uh, Bonta said. The Times investigation found that at least 34,000 marijuana records still have not been fully pro- uh, processed by the courts. Under the bill, the state DOJ would move forward updating its records if courts or prosecutors fail to make their deadlines. By default, the record would be sealed if the case is eligible, said Bonta. There are 34,000 people in the state of California who are not able to truly and fully live their lives because there has been a failure to fully implement this law. Uh, My good friend Felicia Carbajal, executive director of the Social Impact Center in Los Angeles, said the bill was a great step in the right direction to make sure we're not leaving behind the most harmed people. The delays are not... uh, not for for lacking funds. The Times reported the courts received uh, $16.83 million with an M in state funds. 
for uh, processing records. The Judicial Council, which oversees the Superior Courts, distributed the money among the counties but does not track how much how much progress courts have made. San Bernardino received more than $840,000 and Riverside received $638,000 according to Judicial Clinical or Council data. The bill would also expand eligibility for cannabis record clearance to include a conspiracy conviction known as a wobbler in such conspiracy cases prosecutors have discretion to charge whether or not or otherwise a misdemeanor or as a felony i hope this will start a conversation about some of the failings of the war on drugs beyond cannabis said carbajal executive director of the social impact center and uh just as fyi mia mia bonta replaced her husband in a special election in september after he was appointed to the attorney general well I hope all of the, our, uh, our, our past due felons uh, for, for cannabis crimes or cannabis misdemeanors uh, do ultimately get their day in court with their record being sealed and expungement being granted. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I changed my PTR. I changed my profile picture to a, a, a photo that uh, Rob posted on Instagram. It's Mia and Rob, our California Attorney General. Uh, they've been together since high school, and look how hot they are. Oh, my God. And um, we've got Max Michelonis up from the audience. Max uh, uh, basically wrote the Macursa language and worked on Mia's campaign. Max, what have you got to say? Good afternoon, or good morning, folks. Uh, Max Michelonis, Ledge Director for Swimmer Mia Bonta. Happy to be here. Um, you know, we're really excited about this bill, which we're working on with the Last Prisoner Project, um, in order to go and just finally, again, fulfill the promise of Prop 64 with regards to record sealing, record sealing resentencing, and such. Um, no one should have to take individual actions for those records to be cleared. Um, the courts have delayed. There still are, again, tens of thousands of cases across the state that haven't been acted on, um, including cases even in Alameda County. Um, as well as, you know, parts folks down south, whether Ventura, San Bernardino, Riverside, etc. So we're excited to be working on this bill again with LPP. There should be a um, support letter going out soon that folks can sign on to. Um, and really excited to be working with, and working with this member, working on this topic, helping to reduce and seal. And then lastly, we did add in the new language to go further than 64 with regards to conspiracy convictions. Because it's always been a pet peeve of mine, at the very least, about conspiracy committed misdemeanor can be a wobbler. And uh, we need to go and go you know, no more camps felonies. Thank you so much, Max. That was uh, such a, a, a fun, a, a great article. Hopefully um, other states will pay attention to what California is doing. Thank you for all of your work, Max. Um, and thank you for that article, Jason. Let's keep smoking the news. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks so much, Max. Always good to hear from you. Up next, we have the amazing Gretchen Gigli. She is our very own Washington insider, our favorite Republican, sorry, Jason, and the founder of Panoptic Strategies. Gretchen, what have you got for us today? Uh, good afternoon, Laura. My headline. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment, um, and it is Delaware lawmakers approve marijuana legalization bill in committee vote. A bill to legalize marijuana in Delaware cleared its first legislative hurdle on Wednesday, advancing out of the House Health and Human Development Committee on a 10 to 4 vote. The legislation is sponsored by Representative Ed Ozinski, who introduced a similar proposal last year. 
the committee approved last year's measure too, but it ultimately stalled ahead of an expected floor vote due to disagreements over social, social equity provisions. At the time, Mazinski pledged to bring a revised bill for the 2022 session that could earn broad enough support to pass. Mazinski said at the hearing that the proposal would create good-paying jobs for Delawareans while striking a blow against the criminal element which profits from the thriving illegal market in our state. Representative Paul Bombach, co-sponsor of both the current and past versions of the bill, thanked Ozinski for his efforts to tweak and strengthen the bill over time. You've listened so much to many of our concerns, and you and the staff have incorporated so many of the best ideas that are there for this matter. One of the few vocal opponents to the bill at Wednesday's hearing was Representative Charles Postles, who said he didn't believe in either extreme, that of legalization or of excessive punitiveness and worried that the legalization would send a message to kids that cannabis use is safe. We're talking about the government telling your young people that this stuff is fine. Go do it. The bill, HB 305, would allow adults 21 and older to purchase and possess up to one ounce of cannabis, including up to five grams of cannabis concentrates. Growing marijuana at home, as well as home delivery by licensed businesses, uh, would be prohibited. Uh, A marijuana commissioner under the State Division of Alcohol and Tobacco Enforcement would regulate the industry and oversee licensing of retailers, cultivators, manufacturers, and laboratories. Licenses would be granted through a scored competitive process with advantages given to those who pay workers a living wage, provide health insurance, or meet other benchmarks. Efforts at social equity are built into the licensing scheme. After 19 months of the bill's enactment, Regulators would have to approve 30 retailer licenses, half of which would go to social equity applicants. Social equity applicants defined as entities majority owned by people with past cannabis convictions or who live in an area disproportionately impacted by the drug war would also be allotted one-third of the planned 60 cultivation licenses, one-third of manufacturing licenses, and two of five licenses for testing laboratories. Uh, Equity applicants would also qualify reduced application and licensing fees as well as technical assistance from the state. Retail sales of cannabis would be subject to 15% excise tax, which would not be applied to medical marijuana products. Of the tax revenue, 7% would go to a new justice reinvestment fund, which would support grant services and other initiatives that focus on issues such as jail diversion, workforce development, and technical assistance for people in communities that are economically disadvantaged and disproportionately impacted by the drug war. The money would also be used to help facilitate expungements. The current bill will still require a supermajority threshold to pass with 60%. Um, I, I see this, of course, as a good thing that they're pushing forward with legalization. The one thing that I found odd and I would love people's opinions on um, is do you think a social equity applicant, their only requirement needs to be that they've been convicted of a uh, past cannabis conviction? Um, it, it, to me, that kind of seemed a little odd. Uh, this scratching for State of Cannabis News Hour. You think um, this will push Joe Biden in the right direction? <laughs> yeah, I don't think Joe will okay. Joe's not awake enough to notice what's going on. Is Joe in a wheelchair? Why are people pushing him around? Anyways, back to Delaware. Um, Isn't Joe from Delaware? Is that odd? That's what qualifies you to be a social equity applicant is that you have a cannabis conviction. Does any other state do it that way? Vote for corn pop. Well, I think right. I think it's a lot of, a lot of I, th- I think that is the best way if you have a cannabis conviction then to, to be able to qualify for social equity. That that makes a lot of sense to me. It's but I 
think that minorities would, if with clean records, would still face problems. I don't understand why a conviction is the only thing that they think is hampering people. Um, yeah, in this industry, it's it's one element considered in San Francisco, um, but it's definitely not the entire requirement. But All right, I don't know. We'll see. Um, the only problem with this passing last time was the social equity people who had difficulty with the bill last time didn't like the reinvestment fund, uh, which I find interesting. Is that what their hangup was in Delaware last time? So uh, I, I think they should get the, the, the supermajority vote to pass legalization, frankly. Um, there's a lot of cannabis smokers in Delaware, um, and it's a very high um, number actually there for such a small state. So I'm hopeful that it will pass and why the hell not? I, I, it just seems very odd to me. This is Gretchen. Not Thank to mention you. Gretchen, there's a whole bunch of cannabis companies that are out of Delaware as well. We're, we're past the half hour point. So I'm going to uh, relight the room very quickly. You are tuned into the state of cannabis news hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Now, this fifth-generation Californio is an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background, one of um, where we know him here on the State of Cannabis News Hour as the freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Up next, international man of truth, Eric Hislereta. What you got for us this morning, my man? Hey, Rico. Thank you for that intro. Hi, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from the Wisconsin Examiner, and it's Wisconsin Senate Republicans Vote Against Adult-Use Cannabis. So we're seeing a pattern here across the country in places like Virginia, South Dakota, and Mississippi, where one arm of the state government or another, all Republican, are pushing back against common sense and the will of the people who are striving to create a realistic, unobstructed pathway to legalization. So here's what's going on in Wisconsin. Quoting here, Republicans in the Wisconsin Senate stopped an effort by Senator Melissa Agard, Democrat Madison, to force a vote on legalizing the adult use of cannabis. The Senate took up a bill Tuesday that would increase penalties for a person who uses a butane torch to extract resin from a cannabis plant. Agard introduced an amendment to the bill that, instead of making penalties harsher, would have completely legalized all uses of cannabis. Agard said she was introducing the amendment because if the goal of the bill is to increase public safety, then increased criminalization is not the direction to go, especially since most of Wisconsin's neighboring states have legalized either medicinal or adult use. Republicans in the Senate killed Agard's effort by voting that the amendment was out of order and, air quotes, not germane to the initial bill. The original bill, without Agard's amendment, passed on a 20 to 12 party line vote all Republicans for, all Democrats against. I dug a little deeper into this because I wanted to get a sense if any legislation had come up previously, and I found this from the same paper from August of last year. Quoting, in the large parking lot in front of the Sunnyside Dispensary, right across the border from Wisconsin in South Benoit, Illinois, Senator Melissa Agard D. Madison announced a bill to fully legalize cannabis in Wisconsin for medicinal purposes purposes as well as for adult use. Wisconsin is ready for cannabis, she said. Communities most affected by the over-enforced and outdated drug policies are ready. Our farmers are ready. Let's do this together. Let's legalize cannabis. 
Agard has been introducing this bill for five legislative sessions now since 2013, and it has never received a public hearing because Republican leaders oppose legalization. This despite the fact that at a Marquette University law poll from 2019 found that nearly 60% of Wisconsinites support full legalization of cannabis and 83% support legalizing medical cannabis. I've heard a few people opining that Republicans are leading the way to legalization. This clearly isn't leadership. On the local, state, and federal levels, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single Democratic official opposed to legalization. What you will find is opposition to turning on the federal banking money spigot without expungement, equity, and descheduling. The Moore Act contains all those elements, but as we all know, Republicans would never subscribe to something as comprehensive and common sense as that. People of color and the legacy communities are continually asked to wait. Just wait, it'll come. Just give us full banking access and we'll take care of that later. We waited decades for we justice and for centuries on other important issues. No more waiting. It's time to get right on this. No justice, no jingle, at least on the federal level. My suggestion is rather than um, descending into over-politicizing an already difficult situation, we find common ground to make progress. I know there are a few Republican leaders, and they are in the minority in their party, who generally want reform. But it ain't going to happen without Democrats, as the GOP has nowhere near the numbers to do anything on their own. So let's move on the justice and descheduling part, and banking and a better future will be there for all of us. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. No more waiting. No more waiting. I love that perspective. Asset banking. <laughs> uh, Eric, yeah, you're you're so right, Eric. And so much has been done um, in more liberal-led states um, historically that now Republicans are trying to play catch-up and trying to tout their limited accomplishments. Um, and trying to wait, wash away the history of that they frickin' built yeah. the war on drugs. Yeah. Hey, Eric, Eric, do we know what the tax rate um, they were proposing in that bill? Um, I don't, Jason. I could find out. It's actually, the, the report, it wasn't that deep. That's why I decided to go look at other stories, older stories. But there's, um, this, this newspaper has done actually a lot of uh, pretty interesting articles. So I'll dig in for you. That's great. I, I appreciate that. I'm willing to bet it's an erroneously high tax rate. I don't think that was a pushback. That was me- not mentioned in any of the reporting was a tax rate. Oh, hey. You know what? You know how to talk to Republicans. <laughs> All right, up next. (laughs) We're going to keep on going. Up next, we have Mr. Brandon Dorsky. He um, is the CEO of Fruits Labs and our favorite intellectual property attorney. Brandon, what have you got for us today? Thank you for having me. Uh, Today, my headline comes from Boardroom TV. It's Crypto Cannabis Club goes from NFT to IRL. Crypto Cannabis Club launched its own brand and announced Ryan Hunter as its new CEO yesterday. The club will be partnering with Camp Nova, a direct-to-consumer cannabis platform, to deliver Crypto Cannabis Club NFT holders 30% discounts on product deliveries in California. The intent is to invest profits from the cannabis sales to steadily increase the discounts offered to Crypto Cannabis Club members. Every packaged eighth will have custom artwork from the Crypto Cannabis Club, and three packages will include ownership of an NF Toker, currently trading at an $800 value. The NF Toker's collection has 10,000 NFTs that were launched in August. 
Tommy Chong and Cheech Marine joined the collection last week. And there are presently 4,200 NF Toker owners, with $178,000 in trading of NF Tokers over the last week. 60% of the Crypto Cannabis Club members are buying cannabis monthly, where 40% are doing it weekly, and 40% are spending, reporting spending more than $150 per visit. So it sounds like the ownership of one of these NF Tokers in the Crypto Cannabis Club is saving their owners money. Ryan Hunter said... Quote, for our community members, this is an opportunity to enjoy some of the highest quality cannabis available at prices that are just not offered in the legal market. Since crypto's uh, August launch, they've partnered with a variety of brands, including Ricky Williams Heisman, Old Pal, King Palm, Vitality Farms, Marley's Natural, and then some ancillary products and devices like Dr. Dabber, Vibes Papers, Smoke is Focus, Higher Standards, and a few others. Um, the club allows users to breed and sell cannabis plant NFTs, compete in crypto cannabis club competitions for digital and physical goods, and they can go work virtually in a crypto greenhouse where they earn passive income. Uh, I have not personally explored the crypto cannabis club, but admittedly this article makes it sound like it's a bit of an interesting universe and that there is actually a tangible benefit in the term in the form of discounts on cannabis at particip with participating brands at participating retailers. Uh, Ryan said that the goal is for their metaverse properties to become a virtual connection point for cannabis aficionados and for their live events and products to be a contact point uh, for the metaverse in the real world. Uh, there wasn't too much else to this article. It was really a lift from a press release from Crypto Cannabis Club. Uh, but stay tuned. I think this is not going to be the first time you see some interactions between NFTs and, and cannabis. Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Brandon, can we have a toker poker game? Yeah, might need to get consent if we're, if we're promoting NF tokers, though. Is... Uh... How is Zynga not getting involved in this metaverse shit, <laughs> NFT metaverse shit? Like, weren't they the, the originators of virtual greenhouses in the first place? The gaming company? Yeah. Are you talking about Jenga? No. no. I'm talking about that, you know, those, uh, those, those fucking uh, Facebook games that all these kids were playing, the Farmland, Minecraft. <laughs> didn't, didn't Farmland let you grow weed? Integrity. <laughs> Probably. Their GC is a friend of mine, and he's friendly. Uh, they're working on one for adults. It's called Culticraft. <laughs> <laughs> was that a joke or is that real? I, I that no was idea. a joke. I have no fucking idea anymore. <laughs> None of this shit makes sense. High Times has Welcome one for babies. News and opinions. I think I'm going to make a deposit on a $400,000 <laughs> metaverse property. Laurie, you yeah. didn't include humor, news, opinions, and a pinch of humor. <laughs> oh, Maggie just said it. Farmville. Ma Maggie just said it. <laughs> Farmville. I forgot all about that shit. Never could understand it. Never will. And um, I, I need the governor to, to teach me about this shit so I understand the metaverse even more so I can get involved. I can make millions of dollars like these people are right now. It's only money for the metaverse, Rico. It's not really tangible. Metamoney is money. <laughs> All right. 
Let me get off my grumpy old man kick. And so um, up next, she's the founder and CEO of It's Weed Related LLC, a U.S. Army veteran, cannabis advocate, and principal officer at Acre 41 Enterprises, whose main focus is social equity and community outreach. Up next, I'm very proud to introduce our newest correspondent addition to the team, Jaja Simone Brown. Welcome to the team. (laughs) What you got for us today? Good morning. Good morning, everyone. My story is from Benzinga.com, and this story was originally published on The Fresh Toast by Tom Gaffrey. The headline is, What We Tourism Looks Like in 2022 and Beyond. So I found this very interesting because I'm always touring somewhere, and so it's always interesting to know what's coming up new for states and cities with their tourism. So I'll begin. In 2021, there is something new in the air that has begun to inspire a new wave of tourism. One of the latest trending motivators in destination travel is putting it bluntly, weed. So in 2020, there was a report that found that about 30% of vacationing adults around the world were looking for something that was involved in cannabis for their holiday. And the report found that 18% of Americans felt the same way. So I looked at that report, and on this report, it shows that a third of the people that they surveyed had not even consumed cannabis before, but they were very interested in cannabis being available for tourists when they when they travel to these different states. So while many facets of the travel industry struggled to tread water throughout the pandemic, recreational marijuana sales continued to grow and more areas of the world legalized recreational cannabis. So by the end of 2020, Arizona, New Jersey, and South Dakota all legalized recreational cannabis use with Connecticut, New Mexico, New York, and Virginia passing initiatives a year earlier. Um, What's interesting about this to me is in these states that have passed recreational cannabis, they don't have anything set up for tourism. They have no language in their bills or in their laws that relate to tourism. So we have a lot of states where people can consume cannabis. They can go into the dispensaries, but they still have no place that they consume. So tourism is going to be a very big thing. So take West Hollywood. There are potential plans to bring an Amsterdam-like vibe to the posh LA neighborhoods with pot cafes and restaurants and lounges. So that should be interesting to see that unfold. Um, Weed tourism has proven to be so lucrative that some businesses are already establishing roots in some states that have not even legalized recreational cannabis yet. Closed borders and travel bans did not stop medical marijuana legalization from occurring elsewhere in the globe as well. Recently, the island of Malta became the first European country to legalize recreational weed. So as it gets legalized recreational, I think we'll see more and more um, lounges and tourism. I know I'm certainly going to visit some states that have uh, legal cannabis just to see how things go there. We're going to have you be our person on the street. Yes. I would love that. So you would just like travel from state to state, checking out like all these um, uh, consumption zones and shit? Yes, I would. I would love to have the opportunity to do that um, because it seems like every state does 
their thing so differently. And it's, it's just really interesting for me. You know, it would be wicked if you and Stone collaborated and hit the high road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sampled all across the U.S. And, and then I can go all the underground trap shops and I'll be hitting the low road. <laughs> You're already on the road. Is that because everything's cheaper in those markets? It's because there's no taxes, Jason. <laughs> well, this is Jazz Asimone, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Laura. I love it. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Jaja. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Up next, we want to hear from the governor. He uh, is Mr. Nicholas Wildstar. He is uh, a former Republican or independent. Nicholas, please let me know, who actually ran for office on holding PG&E and SoCalEd accountable uh, in the environment and eliminating homelessness. He is a Black Panther Party organizer for the state of California and a former candidate in many markets. Uh, We hope to see him in office sometime soon. Nicholas, what do you got for us today? Thank you. Thank you. I've been everything, <laughs> Laura. I've been an independent, a Democrat, ran as a Republican, a Libertarian. I'm just running for we the people. But top of the morning to you, State of Cannabis crew. If you're listening to the show from the road, then I've got quite the story for you to cruise to. My article asks, dude, where's my car? A two-year study conducted by the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at UC San Diego School of Medicine found that at least 50% of people with THC in their bloodstream were quote-unquote impaired when undergoing driving simulations. Researchers recruited 191 regular cannabis users to partake of cannabis containing different levels of THC or a placebo immediately before a series of driving simulation tests over several hours. According to the findings, the THC group displayed a significantly diminished ability when it came to swerving and lane, responding to divided attention tasks like texting while driving and following a lead car. The non-placebo participants smoked a joint with either 5.9% or 13.4% THC. However, not all displayed significantly diminished driving skills compared to the placebo group. The researchers said only 50% could be described as impaired. The study authors said driving scores did not differ based on the THC content. Both the 5.9% and 13.4% groups performed similarly, suggesting that users self-titrated, meaning measured out their own dosage, by smoking in such a way to achieve similar highness levels. Although users in the THC group felt impaired and were hesitant to drive at 30 minutes, an hour and a half later, they believed the impairment was wearing off and they were more willing to drive, said first and senior author Thomas Marcotte, a professor of psychiatry at UCSD. This was despite their performance not significantly improving from the 30-minute point. This may indicate a false sense of safety, and these first few hours may constitute a period of great risk since users are self-evaluating uh, whether it's safe to drive or not. Paranoid much? Co-author and professor of clinical pathology at UCSD, Robert Fitzgerald, said, the complete lack of correlation between blood concentrations and driving performance was somewhat surprising. It's strong evidence against developing per se driving under the influence statutes, 
per se laws. Latin for by itself establishes statutory violation if a legal standard is breached, such as blood alcohol concentration and driving under the influence laws. The authors and the findings indicate the cannabis use resulted in diminished driving ability in simulators. But when, when in experienced marijuana users controlled their intake, Impairment could not be inferred based on THC content, behavioral tolerance, or THC blood concentrations. They wrote that the future research should address factors such as biological differences, personal experience with cannabis, and how cannabis is administered in relation to driving impairment. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. the governor, and I'm running this year for governor. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Peace. Yay, Nicholas. I love this story. I love the way they handled uh, this study. Um, I I think that it's great that they're saying, you know, we just don't know enough and it's complicated rather than here, just blow into this machine or look into the, the screen and, and we can tell because we all know that it's complicated. Um, but the one thing that I w did want to mention was that uh, this is one of those cases where the, the headline doesn't match the article. The same person that wrote the article did not write this headline. I, I read the headline. I was like, dude, where's my car? Oh, okay, this should be interesting. But they didn't talk about memory at all. So it was like, okay, <laughs> what's going on here? They're just assuming all potheads just forget everything. Well, even if we uh, forget things, apparently, you know, our driving is not impaired. According to this study, so well, they said I they like said that. that people were yeah, hesitant true. in the first thirty minutes. People were hesitant to drive. I think well, that is a key I, difference. I, I did one of the one of these tests for uh, the doctor show, and I got high as hell because I really wanted to know myself. Anyway, um, they couldn't they couldn't get me. I I, I passed all of the driving tests, and then after when they edited the show. Um, they showed some bullshit results, so <laughs> it's. Did, I believe they, this. What was said. it? Was it bring your own weed? Oh, I'm not smoking their weed. Hell no. <laughs> 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 of course, I smoke my own weed. Yeah. I, uh, so. I think I think all this all this talk about you know especially on a federal level like all this talk about like impaired driving and shit is going to be a moot point because by the time it's federally legal, we're all going to be in a, a, autonomous cars anyways. So you're saying we're not going to have federal legal legalization for a while, Rico? I don't think you're going to have a, 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 a clear choice on how they're going to handle impaired driving. We're going to be in the backseat of an Uber. Nobody's going to see in there. Nobody's going to know what we're doing. This is Lanita. I thought it was a really interesting article, and maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear any uh, comparison to how... Um, alcohol has been done. You know, folks have been drinking forever and they think they know their own limits. And it's only until they get pulled over for DUI that they actually know, well, damn, maybe I was a little beyond that. And I think when we start looking at, you know, uh, comparisons, that's to me what they forgot. They forgot to tell you that this road has been traveled and how do we measure that going, some people, you know, your limit is not my limit. And so your um, ability to, to get high and, and the amount that you take in, whether it's THC level or just a lot of low 
THC, um, you're going to get, you're going to be impaired. But your impairment may or may not affect your ability to drive, as the young lady was saying, right? She was able to get high as hell and pass. Now, that's not what they showed in the show, but that's what happens. And so I think there's a lot more. It was a great article, and I think the study is probably great. I'd like to look at it and probably will. But I think that there's some some other stuff to it, and, and I expect um, some some opposite views to come from that. Thank you, Lenita. We, we need to move to Priscilla, but while we're moving to Priscilla, I'd like the audience to raise your hand if you get high and drive. Raise your hands. We're not going to bring you up to the stage. Allegedly. We're not going to... Allegedly, yeah, we're just, you know, pretend. Uh, okay. Yeah, don't ask people to incriminate themselves. Allegedly. 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 Uh, I think that it's worth noting and NBC published this article and alcohol brands advertise on NBC. So they may not have wanted to uh, draw a distinction between cannabis and alcohol because it is shown cannabis, cannabis consumption, you're less impaired than alcohol consumption. Case in point. Did you say case in joint, Nicholas? <laughs> are we, we going to have time for, uh, for Priscilla? Yeah, here? I want to fill in if we have a moment. Priscilla, I can see you. She's, she's amazing, and she's up on stage. She's ready to go. She is one of the top 25 women in cannabis, making history. She's the CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League and a valued correspondent. Priscilla, what do you got? Thanks, Laura. Uh, well, my study shows that cannabis companies uh, use marketing that appeals to kids. So a new study was done by the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, and it shows that recreational cannabis companies are using marketing that appeals to children and teens. Obviously, we have laws in place in multiple states that prohibit such advertising. So the study was led by Dr. Megan Moreno, she looked at, uh, for a whole entire year, social media posts from cannabis companies in Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. Moreno said that the advertisements can easily be viewed by everybody, including kids. The study looked at 2,666 uh, 2,660 posts from 14 different companies and found that 35% of posts advertised discounts or promotions and that less than half of the posts contained the required safety warnings for products being advertised. All of these types of ad advertisements are illegal. Uh, some cannabis companies generated dozens of social media posts per day, Moreno said, and there is no current system in place to monitor or enforce these regulations on this scale. So they observed companies using content to appeal to young people, such as young models and cartoon characters. The company is also marketed to people with budgetary constraints despite state regulations. Uh, Moreno recommends policymakers increase enforcement of rules and regulations regarding social media advertising, which could include banning cannabis companies from using social media altogether. Would love to hear what you guys think about this, but I know we're at time. Yeah, I'm sorry that you guys click on the link and, oh, it's not up there. Uh, hey, become a super fan so you can get the link to all of these stories because it's news that you we handpicked for you so uh, you don't have to comb through the headlines yourself. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. Thank you, correspondents. Thank you, Lara and Rico. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz. And a big thank you to the audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust.
You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Peace out. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.